Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And Tara's discussing the film The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. And joining us today is our special guest, Craig Erpelding. So welcome, Craig. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Well, thank you for the chance to talk with you and everybody about that amazing movie. Yeah, yeah, we're really excited. And we'll get to the movie in just a few (laughs) minutes. But before we do that, can you get us started by telling us a little bit about what you do in the entertainment world? Yeah. So, you know, I've had, like many people, a variety of lives uh, within and variety of careers within um, the last few years. Um, I started off, you know, wanting to be a screenwriter, a real quick story, um, and maybe it can turn into a plug for all of those aspiring filmmakers and directors. Just uh, So I, I went out to UCLA for screenwriting um, after I w- was an advertising copywriter for a while. And I use like my scripts that I wrote, wrote for these awful commercials to get into UCLA and they let me in. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I moved from Kansas. I grew up in Kansas and I decided to move out to, to LA just thinking like I was really, you know, I was going to make it. It was inevitable. I, you know, had no money. I PA'd luckily for like this production company for a day in Santa Monica and they do like car commercials, like the Mercedes, BMW, all of that sort of stuff. And I PA'd there for a day and I, you know, you don't have to do very well to be a great PA. I just like didn't fall on my face or make anyone else fall on their face. And, and they were like, Craig, you did a good job. You know, do you want to keep working here? And I was like, no, I'm going to UCLA to be a screenwriter. Yeah. And they said, okay, but you know, like, you know, you could work your way up here. You could direct these car commercials for, you know, like Mercedes and BMW. Doesn't that sound good? I said, no, you know, I'm going to be a screenwriter. And they said, right, right. Exactly. And all of you that are in LA, you know, you're just like, yeah, exactly. I get that. So anyways, uh, fast forward, I got my MFA from DePaul University in Chicago. Um, in directing. And when we got to the end of our sort of like time there, people said, you know, what? we should all just talk about like, what is it that we would really like to direct? Of course, like this has put me like deep into like student loan debt and like yeah. I've traveled all across the country. And I said, you know, what would be the most fun thing to direct like a BMW commercial. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I for all of those young, um, aspiring filmmakers out there, you know, the, the real truth of the matter is, is, you know, be open, you know, say yes to opportunities, um, you know, because sometimes, you know, the universe places it right in front of you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I was so stubborn. So now I teach at Indiana University in their film school. And, you know, so many students are just like, I'm going to be the next Greta Gerwig and I'm going to be the next Wes Anderson or whatever it is. And it's like, well, you be you and find your own way. And, you know, if you are if you are a good person to to hang out with, if you are a, a hard worker and make your boss look good, people will stop one day and say, how can I get you to the place that you want to be? Yeah. Everyone knows that nobody wants to get coffee the rest of their life. (laughs) But anyways, the way that I got to be teaching at Indiana University uh, while I was in Chicago, I took on this attitude of saying yes to all the other, the things that everyone else said no to. 
Yeah. And so nobody at my film school wanted to media manage. Like who wants to be the person that's offloading the camera cards to yeah. the computer while everyone else is having fun out on set. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to be on set. So anyways, it got to the point where I got really good at that. And then my instructors who were shooting their own independent projects would pay me to go and be uh, the media manager on their projects. And then when major TV shows came to town and they were like, who's going to, who's going to come do this stuff. Then my name got thrown out there. And so I actually went and met with a production company, a great dailies uh, post house called mango LA. And they said, Hey, we're looking for a colorist. And I said, well, you, I am not that. So <laughs> I'll see you later, like, thank you for the, and they said, no, no, no. And again, it was one of these things where I was very honest um, and just a good person to hang out with. And they ended up giving me a position to do the dailies on a couple shows, Crisis and Mind Games. And then fast forward, um, we ended up doing the pilot for Empire. And then I worked for three years. I developed this post-production workflow. I got to travel all around the country to help them set up and establish for Atlanta and whatnot. And, uh, you know, that post-production workflow of all things, mm -hmm. you know, from being a, a PA uh, that was too good for directing BMW commercials. Um, I got to to do that. And uh, by just saying yes, you know, and I feel like if you are good and diligent at what you do and you care a lot about making those above you look good, you are going to go so far. And so anyways, I did that. I would teach at DePaul during the day and then I would do all the dailies at night. And after five years of that, I said, I got to pick one. Because yeah, I just sure. can't, you know, I just, you know, I need to be able to. And so I decided when the job came available at Indiana University to go down there. And, nice. uh, you know, everyone's going to have their own story and their own way of getting there. I think the real important lesson that I tell my students is you have to be patient. Yeah. You yeah. have to be patient. You cannot just go out there and say, I am going to be Martin Scorsese at age 23. Mm -hmm. Right. Craig, you mentioned doing dailies. For those people who are not in the industry, what does that mean? Yeah, this is, it is one of the most important parts of the industry that nobody knows anything yeah. about. <laughs> and um, so essentially, you know, on a show like Empire, where we shot it in Chicago, mm -hmm. all of our uh, producers and editorial team was in LA. And so in order for all of the producers in the studio to understand what gets shot every day, we have to essentially give them every single shot so that they can review everything from actors performances to is it the shots that we need now it doesn't get edited edited together so it's not like we do a daily edit but we would take um, all of the footage that was shot every single uh, day we would provide a little bit of a color correction for it and for those of you uh, that are that understand camera work a lot of these higher end cameras shoot in a way that contains a lot of color Right. But it's shoot in a format or in a color space called log, which looks gray and muddy. Yeah. For all of those people out in LA that are the producers that are like, why did I give hundreds <laughs> of millions of dollars to get something that looks like this? So the dailies folks will add some color correction, make okay. it um, and then send it out, you know, to uh, secure YouTube essentially so that people all around the world can watch shot by shot everything that was shot. Uh, the pre previous day. So it's the days shoots from the previous days. Great. I guess that's where dailies comes from. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were in Kansas before you decided to go to film school, right? Did you grow up in Kansas? 
I did. I grew okay. up in uh, Manhattan, Kansas. Oh, that's, that's where, actually that's where, where I was Ben born. was born. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Um, so did you hear about the industry a lot growing up or how did you kind of realize that you wanted to work in this industry that maybe isn't as prominent in Kansas? So when I was growing up, the idea, I mean, my parents thought it was crazy that I would yeah. be interested in entertainment because that only happened at that point in time in LA or New York. Right. It's really a pipe dream because the number of movies that came out was so small. There was no such thing as streaming services. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff that was on television was was not Empire or that, you know, type of stuff. And so I mean, there was just wasn't that many channels for for content to be created. And so I actually did not know what I wanted to do. And I ended up going into this degree called bakery science. Bakery science. Because it was a guaranteed job. It was a guaranteed good job. Kansas State, where Manhattan, Kansas, the only uh, school in the world that has this degree. Yeah, I've never heard of it. It was like... Perfect until the day that my creative heart beat a little too strong, and um, we had a competition on <laughs> writing skits, right? And uh, it was always my dream to be on SNL, just yeah. like everybody. Right. Isn't that everybody's dream, right? And so, so I I wrote a skit that won, and there was this guy that had traveled from Kansas City, which is like two hours away, that was at like the comedy sports. So, I mean, you know, again, like. Not like, you know, the groundlings, but like comedy sports. Yeah. And uh, which are are still many talented people. And he was like, hey, you know, I think you're pretty good. And that was all it took. That was all it took. I changed my degree from this guaranteed awesome job (laughs) to the only creative thing that they had at Kansas State University, which was advertising. Okay. And then then I went and started doing advertising and then I made the lead. Okay. That makes sense. Very cool. Oh my gosh. That's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, that's a good point is that it's, I mean, you don't hear about these jobs even now. Um, it's gotten a little better, but you don't hear about entertainment jobs when you live in the Midwest, you know, it's not something people think like, yeah, this makes sense that I would go be a screenwriter or, you know, even work in post-production or be a colorist, you know, like, well, it's, it's so foreign. And, um, yeah. two things, one, these creative fields are getting closer. They are getting yes. closer to right. these places. I mean, I worked with some of the state legislators here in Indiana to ensure them that that we can pipeline mm-hmm. filmmaking uh, professionals into if they were to put a tax incentive in place, yeah. and, and Indiana did mm-hmm. this yep. year actually make a, a film and media incentive it's recently. Yeah. So, but but a quick story. Yeah. One of my favorite students is Tessa Haig. And she uh, had came to like two of our high school summer camps. Like she came to the exact same summer camp twice cool. because she loved it. Yeah. So her dad came over to me and, and they're from Vincennes, Indiana, which is like, you know, right on the border of Illinois. And, you know, he's a blue collar guy, super nice guy. He's like, look, I love my daughter to death. But when she tells me she wants to go into filmmaking, I don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah. Like there can't be a better career path for her. And, uh, you know, because these jobs are are showing up all over the place, mm-hmm. as long as people can work together and not go on strike too much, you know, yeah. there will be continue, continue to be some work. And, yeah. and, uh, and so it's a really exciting time for anybody who wants to get into this industry, because unlike myself, that it was a pipe dream for all anybody who is interested in, you can move to, you know, half of the states or more yeah. and, and find a career there and people are needed 
people are necessary. Mm-hmm. Most people in the industry are super nice. And, yeah. uh, and so it is a, you know, I'm super excited for the times for my students and for anyone else who's looking forward to getting into the industry. Yeah, it definitely seems like it's spreading out. I mean, we hear about more and more states like Tennessee is starting to have a film industry. Obviously, right. Indiana is kind of on the cusp, like with um, the tax incentives that were passed. I mean, Georgia's like, huge. Georgia's huge. Yeah. yeah. So in North Carolina, you know, so you're starting to hear more and more about different states outside of New York and L.A. Yep. And even, I mean, Atlanta's had a scene for a while. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's very exciting. Are you able to tell us a little bit about that process of working with the legislature to get that tax incentive passed? Yeah, so the process is really interesting. You know, it started about 11 years ago, and one of our great uh, alums that uh, is now uh, on our advisory board at the media school, Jessica Patel, Yeah, she she worked really hard um, initially to try and get the state to pass these sort of incentives. She was living, I don't want to tell her story, but it, but in a nutshell, she was living in Indiana and didn't want to move to LA. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is kind of the same story. I mean, that's a story uh, that I told the legislators as, you know, Tessa Haig wants to work in this industry and still wants to see her her dad for Father's right. Day, right? Yeah. right. Um, and you can do that by passing a small incentive here in the state of Indiana. But but what we did is I worked with a local production company uh, had brought some legislators to campus, and uh, and you know at that point in time we had just built like about a three thousand square foot soundstage. So we converted an old TV studio into uh, a soundstage which just kind of had two little sets like a little bar restaurant set and a little office apartment set and they came through and and we talked a lot about the initiatives of the program in order to pass a degree you have to pass it through the state okay uh, at a school like indiana university so we had promised them that this degree was going to create qualified professionals and so once i showed them the curriculum, and once we showed them this soundstage space, and we discussed a lot uh, at the, you know, when I was at DePaul University, they went from being not really known as a film school to a top 25 film school within about 11 years. It was pretty wow. fast. And so I walked them through the different processes that I had seen at DePaul and how we were trying to replicate that at IU. And uh, we went through our numbers where we were churning out 150 students you know, every semester through some of these courses. So they understood that the interest was there from students, even those in Indiana. Mm -hmm. Um, And I worked closely with Jess Patel, Angelo Pizzo, uh, also the writer of Hoosiers and Rudy, through all of these sort of things to say, look, there is enough interest. These students want to stay in Indiana. It's up to us to be able to find a way to give them career paths here. And uh, as much as I would like to say it was all me, I don't think so. It was, it was, you know, a lot of, of really good conversations with some really awesome legislators. It's just started, you know, we, we are still waiting to, to see exactly how it, it may manifest some projects and in, in industry and, and, yeah. and stuff like that. It's so new, but it's, it's an exciting time. Yeah, it's really exciting. Very cool. Very cool. These days, as you're teaching, are you still writing and directing? You know, my passion is to do those things. And what I have kind of found is that um, my best value right now to the university is helping mentor students and grad students. And so my big focus has been the last few years to to do that, to help 
um, student directors find their unique voice, you know, because, hey, this is if any student that wants to go out there and be a director, look, the 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 industry has changed. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the old way that people would work on these um, productions uh, has shifted quickly. When I was working on Empire, you know, our, our great DP was a longtime industry veteran, um, you know, and had had earned his stripes all the way up. And then we did a pilot for the Exorcist TV show. Mm. And um, the DP for that was uh, somebody that the showrunner saw a film from just out of film school. I think I think they were 25 years old at the time. I mean, this is unheard of that a 25 yeah. would be the DP of a major show for Fox, <laughs> but it's because they had a unique style and voice and way that they created the image. And the second anecdote is there was this kid in Michigan, 17-year-old that just made a found footage film and put it on YouTube. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden it gets passed around all of the Hollywood elite. And, and next thing you know, at 18 years old, he's signing a directing deal <laughs> yeah. to direct the feature. And so when I tell my students, you know, hey, your project for this class could launch your career. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's no BS. I mean, that yeah. there is a real opportunity for people to create their unique voice, their their tone. You know, we'll talk about Life Aquatic here in, in a moment. And Wes Anderson is the perfect example oh, yeah. of who has full command of their voice and tone and artistry. And there's no reason that anybody, no matter what their age is, can't have a command of that. I don't think that people nowadays, and I don't teach my students to try and chase what other people have done. Mm -hmm. You know, stop trying to be Greta Gerwig or Wes Anderson. Start being you. Yeah. And start digging into your own personal humor and irony and drama and make make your stories about you. Make them therapeutic in a way. Find a way to infuse yourself and the people in your life into your stories. And so that's what I've been spending a lot of time on. And the funny thing about that, I mean, I think I was a marginally poor director when I got my degree at DePaul. And probably my amazing mentors up there would say the same thing. But, <laughs> but by teaching and by really thinking through these processes and, and helping students get there, I think my own process has changed in a better yeah. way. And I do look forward to a moment when I do, you know, create a short film or maybe even a feature. I, I have some ideas, but, you know, I think that my process is going to completely change, uh, you know, and I'm going to try and take my own medicine on the stuff that yeah. I've been telling them. And it, and it should be exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. very cool. And I think, you know, people like you going teaching and mentoring is so important, you know, just getting the next generation out there. And also, you know, you can, you can share such practical experience of being right. in the industry. I think that's so valuable because, you know, we've talked to some people who said they went, you know, to other film schools and they got out and they didn't really know what to do. Cause you know, they didn't really talk about the realities of the industry. And I think having people teach who've been in the industry is so important. So, and also it's gotta be exciting when your students go off and you get to see what they do. Like that's gotta be really cool. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I form a really unique bond with all of these students that I put through these paces. Yeah. 
And it's like now that we have the BFA in cinematic arts at, at Indiana University, we've only churned out some like, you know, I think the number of students that have gone through our BFA, it's a very, you know, limited sort of like um, acceptance. You know, we had three this year. Next year, I think we'll have six. The next year after that, I think we might have eight. You know, I really get to know these students, yeah, really awesome. get to know what makes them tick. And so I think, you know, it's really interesting. And, and the thing is, is I know that, you know, we're just one of many, many, many schools that that have similar degrees and similar programs. I'm excited for the future of this yeah. industry. And I'm really excited for the creativity that these really young minds that maybe aren't warped or destroyed by you know <laughs> time like the rest of us, like they just have such a unique perspective. Although the one thing I will say, and for all of the young folks out there that that you know are going through the paces of what I've talked about, where it's like infusing yourself into your own projects. We live in a really interesting time right now where we've just kind of come out of the pandemic. Yeah. Right? And we have students that spent two years of their college career under lockdown. Yeah, that's that's and the one thing that I've seen is that gets reflected in their projects. Oh, oh wow. sure. Yeah. Which is totally fine, but all of my friends out there that are young filmmakers that have gone through this, let's find some hope. Let's yeah. find some positivity. You know, let's find that, you know, there is, you know, a light uh, around the bend and, um, you know, and and everything isn't going to be bad. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's you know, great people like you, great people um, that that can be mentors you know, I think it's our job to let people know that, hey, you know, there's a really intriguing and fun future yeah. for um, filmmaking. I mean, we call it filmmaking, but it's TV, it's social yeah, media content, yeah. it's, you know, podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's there's no need to be depressed. It's it's so fun and exciting, and yeah. there's such really creative content ahead of us. Yeah, great. <laughs> So we understand you've also written a book as well, Craig. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I did, you know, and by the way, it's an excellent book, I think. <laughs> well, so here's the interesting thing is that when I came to Indiana University, we had a great uh, legacy program, and I kind of was brought here to kind of fill the needs of um, those that were looking to do more industry style single camera productions. So because of that, I ended up developing four or five different courses to kind of, you know, make a sequence and what I found was that there was no comprehensive textbook to go from idea development to final delivery. Um, we have a lot of these great um, books like Save the Cat that might right. you know, yeah. hit on one part of it or, you know, some of these, you know, iconic books like In the Blink of an Eye, yep. which will talk about, you know, Merch's specific um, approach, but then there's all these Blaine Brown books that are amazing that focus only on cinematography, that focus only on. And so what I what I thought was in order to make a simple curriculum, we needed to turn it around and say the reason that people go to movies is that they want to feel something, right? We go to watch a horror movie with the expectation that we are going to be scared. And if we are not scared, then we think that movie sucks, right? And so if we want to be better filmmakers, we need to understand the visceral responses that we're trying to elicit in our audience. And if we do that through every step of the process, 
then all of a sudden, you know, our editorial choices become easier. Our cinematography becomes a little bit easier and it's all points of communication. So the whole book is kind of a comprehensive look at how you talk about your idea, how you present your idea um, to your collaborators and work through the entire process. And so it was an exciting adventure, one I don't think I will ever do again, <laughs> but, uh, but nonetheless fun. Yeah. What's the name of it? It's called Filmmaking with Intention. Nice. Great. We did talk a little bit before we started recording. You mentioned that you've been looking into kind of like how AI affects the filmmaking process or the writing process. Did you want to kind of go into detail about some things you found or noticed with that trend that's growing right now? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really interesting. Having gone through the screenwriting, I've kind of tinkered around with are there ways to help truncate the staring at a blank page, <laughs> you know, blinking cursor sort of thing? Not the um, worst part of the process. <laughs> right, you know, because here's the thing. We're all creative and we all have ideas in our mind. Like when I, when I packed up my car and drove from Kansas out to LA to go to UCLA thinking I am a hotshot screenwriter, the guy at the gas station was like, I see your plates from Kansas. What are you doing out here? And I said, I'm going to be a screenwriter. And he's like, oh, I got a screenplay too. You know? And so everybody has a great idea. Yeah. Um, but it's getting getting through that arduous you know, process that, that a lot of people find. How do you get you know, the synopsis on the page? How yeah. do you get the beat outline out there? And so I've tinkered around with um, you know, what prompts people might have for their own ideas and how they can plug that into chat, chat GPT and say, here's, here's my idea. Now use the hero's journey to make the outline. Or here's, here's my horror idea. Use the 15-minute method to give me an outline. And the, the good thing is, is that chat GPT understands those different methodology. Although I'll have to ask it to use my book to give me an yeah. outline. <laughs> yes. but, but I think that, it you know, to get a beat outline. And, and when I've worked with some independent studies, we'll have it do a variety of different methods. We'll change the prompts to try and, again, get some of those outlines because sometimes that is the toughest thing. Yeah, you know, Help me with a character description. Help me with a beat outline. Um, and, and, and I've found that when I've asked ChatGPT to write a scene, mm -hmm. it is certifiably awful. Yeah. <laughs> right? But but that's what writers do. I right. love putting it on the page. I love writing the script, yeah. the outline, some of these other things that can be, you know, hold up the process. And so, right. again, I... I don't agree with using, you know, chat GPT in, in certain ways that might be a little bit unethical, but for people who have their own creative ideas and are yeah. looking for a tool to truncate some of these arduous processes, it can really help jumpstart creativity in certain ways. And, and that's what I've been doing with, with my yeah. students. Yeah, that's cool. interesting. So it's just kind of figuring out, not using it to replace the writing process or replace a writer, but just like, how can writers use this tool that's here, regard, you know, whether we want it to be or not, how can they use it to help out what they're doing and just make yeah. their job a little bit easier, or a little, get started a little bit faster. I think that's really... Well, and I mean, how many of us have spent, you know, weeks yeah. outlining something that we get to the end of it and we're like, this sucks. I, <laughs> you know, I just wasted a week. Well, yeah. let's have GPT, like 
you know, flesh that out for you. And, and, you know, maybe it'll be a time saver at some point. Maybe the government's going to take it away. I don't know. But, but anyways, for right now, I, the one thing I know is that it writes awful scripts. Yeah. (laughs) It has no idea of tone or voice or style, but what it can do is say, Hey, I've got this logline and synopsis that is really exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Help me merge that with yeah. some of these tried and true, you know, the Sid Field, you know, three act structure. It it'll do that for you. And yeah. then, then you know, all of us that write like rewriting more than the initial writing phase. And I feel mm-hmm. like on that beat island, it lets me get right into the revision stage of making it exactly what I would want. And right. you know, it literally is in a flash. Yeah. Very cool. Well. Craig, what's the most challenging part of your job? I would say that the really the most challenging part of my job is a little bit of, you know, talking about things like AI. Yeah. Um, you know, we are lucky at the media school that our that we get support when it comes to trying to be on the leading edge of certain yeah. technologies and, you know, industry standard, you know, practices and gear and stuff like that. And I know that a lot of other film schools find budgetary constraints and things like that, that really make it a challenge. Um, You know, and, you know, while we don't, I mean, we are not Chapman, right? (laughs) Um, We do have the ability to teach the workflows and prepare students to do things. But I find the real challenge is for us teachers to stay on the front edge of that technology. Yeah. When the technology is changing, I mean, when NAB happened and and all of the news came out from NAB about all of the updates to Premiere Pro and Resolve, I was like, I quit. There's no way way because here's the thing. As a teacher, I'm going to go teach editing in the fall. Mm -hmm. And every student that comes into my class is going to know that software better than me. Yeah. Which is great. And I I really think that it's going to change the landscape of film schools moving forward because technology is going to be cheaper, more yeah. accessible, and students are going to be, are going to know this stuff before they even come to college. And I think, right. well, the future of film school is again, teaching the thought process, teaching yeah. the voice, teaching the unique perspective, teaching the film literacy, uh, you know, again, which is the way that we truncate our uh, communication on a film set. You know, what are you trying to do? Like you remember the matrix, right? <laughs> and that's how people know exactly what you're trying to do. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, I think film schools are going to be more of like, Hey, you already know this stuff. Let's have a playground. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's challenge you in certain ways to make some projects that lean on film literacy, but, you know, use every creative tool that you have in front of you and, and go do it. Because even nowadays, there's some students that are that, you know, they take a, a class on Adobe Premiere and they're like, I knew this years ago. Yeah. yeah. And um, so so anyways, I think that's my biggest challenge is how can we as an academic institution stay not ahead of the curve as far as technology, but as far as preparing people to go out there and be a creative, you know, be a creative voice because they're going to be able to use you know, learn the technology in other ways that are faster right. and a heck of a lot cheaper yeah. than your tuition <laughs> at, you know, a university. 
Yeah. Yeah. Kind of teaching them those big ideas versus, you know, the technical stuff, like you said, that they can learn on their own. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any moments from your career? And this can be from any any part of it from teaching or from your work before on empire or anything like that, that are either a favorite moment or a moment where like, I can't believe this is what I get to do for a living. Well, I'll say this, you know, the, the whole thing was such a long journey for me. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I had three different careers before yeah. I landed on this one. You know, there was a moment, you know, the kid from Kansas that had this pipe dream, you know, yeah. to work on a show on, on a movie or whatever it is. And there was a day so being a dailies operator, like you're not necessarily like in the thick of all of the right. excitement. Right. Uh, you kind of like they built us a little closet with a computer, <laughs> you know, in like the back corner of the production office that had no windows and said, do your work there. And uh, much nicer than that. And um, but anyways, we have access to go to all of the sets and Empire was really, really long days. And for all of you that have worked, um, you know that that after a certain point in time, you get a second meal. And so, um, you know, being on dailies, I was working, you know, through the nights and all of that. And so so there was a day that we had second meal and they would they were so gracious. They always brought in food trucks and they would park them in, you know, between the stages. And so I would go and get, you know, whatever it was, tacos or pizza. And then I would walk back through the sets And there was a day that, I mean, there was this glorious moment in Empire um, where they had a music performance in this this lounge that they had built the set. And it was just, I mean, the production design on that show was night, like lights out. And, uh, and, And I was sitting there like eating my taco, looking at this iconic set, which was built to be like, you know, these beautiful Chicago clubs or whatever it is from the, you know, early days. And at that point in time, Empire was an anomaly because there's only been a few television shows in history that have, you know, they their launch and then the ratings go up week yeah. after week. You know, most they launch big and then they come down fairly quick. And Empire just grew. And it was the biggest thing. I think at that point in time, Madonna had put out an album and Empire's soundtrack beat it on the Billboard <laughs> 100. You know, and it's like all of a sudden, like I was a part of this thing, you know, though I just did dailies, but there was such a pride that everybody who worked on that show, I mean, there was celebrations all the time when ratings came out. And it was like, this is, this is really exciting. This is, you know, when you work on those big TV shows and, you know, you have these long hours and it can be really arduous, the friendships, the family that you end up getting from those crew and those people that you put that time in those long hours. I mean, those little things become such successes and, you know, you cherish that forever. Right. Excellent. Great. Very cool. All right. We got one more question for you, Craig, and then we'll get finally get to the movie. (laughs) So what advice do you have for people who want to get into the industry? Well, so here's the thing is I think, you know, for anybody, you know, why is it that you want to do this would be the first question that you should ask yourself. I had a a student come into my office the other day that said, I am going to be the best horror director anyone has ever seen. You know, and what do you say? What do you say to that? Because here's a 20 year old Mm -hmm. who, um, and I said, the first thing, well, the first thing that I said was, have you ever directed a movie? And they said, no. And I said, okay, well, well, you know, there is nothing that says that you can't be that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but you have to think about why it is that you want to do that. Because if you want to be the best horror director, you know, it's kind of like LeBron James or, you know, Michael Jordan, like right. you have to, every moment of your life has to be thinking about how you're going to be a better film director. Yeah. And, and there is no moment, you know, I, I just watched that, uh, the, the Michael Jordan documentary, the last dance. Yep. Yeah. I was like, Michael Jordan was coming up with fake reasons to, to motivate himself to like be a better player, you know? <laughs> and it's like, that's kind of what you have to do. Like you have to understand that that is an extremely elite sort of like performance level that you're looking to achieve, but it's possible. It's possible, but you have to understand if you're willing to put that work in and you will never know yeah. until you go make one, right? And so I think, you know, a lot of people, for me, you know, thinking back, like, what was it that I really wanted to do? Was it I wanted to work in this industry to prove my parents wrong or to prove that I could get out of Kansas or or whatever it was? Um, and until I figured out why I really wanted to, to work in this industry and what I was good at, uh, it was all you know, wasted time. And so I do think that everybody should ask themselves, well, why is it important to work in this this Mm -hmm. industry? And what is it that you want to do? Because the industry itself is an industry, meaning that if you love shopping for clothes, there is a job for you in the industry. If you love spreadsheets and mathematics, there are more jobs in this industry (laughs) than, you know, and so it's like, it doesn't have to be that I want to be on the camera team, you know, or, or anything else. It could just be like, look, I want to be a part of the excitement that is said project. So that's what I would say for people who are looking, find people that are doing the things that you want to do and see if you can just shadow them, have a coffee with them. So many people in this industry have worked so hard and had such weird ways of getting to where they ended up being that everyone loves sharing that story, which a podcast like this is perfect because everyone loves sharing their own unique story. And so everyone has to be willing to be patient yeah. Um, willing to go out of their way to put themselves in positions where they will have a chance. The other thing is, is you you have to be willing to put in the time and effort and energy and give up on other things in life early on. Uh, I remember when I was at UCLA, like one of my buddies who went on to, you know, be an incredible producer. Um, we would go to Santa Monica Beach and, you know, we'd have beers and throw the football and he'd be sitting there with stacks of scripts, you know, and doing coverage. And it's just like, well, as long as you know what it is that you're aiming to do, you know, you'll get there and don't let anything else get in, in your way. Um, and definitely do not let people tell you you'll never do it. Yeah. Definitely block those people out. Keep the thumbs up people around you. You can do it. You It will work out for you. It's just, it's a long game. It's a patience yeah. game. And put yourself in the place where you can be successful. Let's get to our featured film. Taylor is discussing the 2004 Wes Anderson film, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. It was written by Wes Anderson and Noah Bambach, and it was directed by Wes Anderson. It stars Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Angelica Houston, Kate Blanchett, and Willem Dafoe. So before we get into it, Susan, can you give us a quick breakdown? What's this movie about? Yeah, so this is sort of like a fake bio... Well, it's not a biopic. Um, it's just a story about Steve Zissou, who's an oceanographer, a famous oceanographer, sort of based off Jacques Cousteau, but not really... Inspired by. Inspired by. And right at the top of the movie, uh, his friend and partner in this in all of his work, uh, Esteban, is killed by a what they describe as a jaguar shark. 
No one else saw this happen, but Steve Zissou, he's showing his newest nature film um, to an audience in a fancy theater. And they're watching this happen on screen and they see his, you know, you don't see what happens to his partner, but he, you hear him say what happens to his partner. A lot of them don't believe him. They don't really know what happened. They don't know if he actually saw this shark or if it was a delusion or a hallucination or if he's just totally making it up. So he then vows to get revenge on this shark and he forms a team to hunt it down, including uh, this guy, Ned, who shows up and tells Steve that he thinks he's his son. He Steve invites him on the crew to find out if he's his son or not, because um, they aren't sure. Um, I'll see uh, Angelica Houston playing his wife, Eleanor. She comes on for a while. Uh, Kate Blanchett playing Jane, a journalist who just drops in and, and tells him, hey, I'm joining your expedition. And then just insanity ensues. <laughs> a million things happen in this movie. I feel like sometimes you're watching four different movies wrapped into one, just style-wise. Oh, totally. We'll get into that more. So Excellent. Yeah. And then, Craig, you chose this movie for us to watch. Why did you choose The Life Aquatic? Well, you know, we all get asked all the time, what is your favorite film? Yeah. And especially as a teacher, I get asked that very often. And very often I find myself pointing to one of three movies. And the one that I continue to point to, I think the most often is this film. One thing that I really love about this movie is that it is not Wes Anderson's most popular film. No, it's right? not. Yeah. When I show it in class, most of my students have seen all of the good popular yeah. Wes Anderson <laughs> films. And they're like, why are you showing us this one? <laughs> But I think that, you know, everybody looks at Wes Anderson as, you know, one of those filmmakers that has such, well, they call him an auteur, right? Yeah. right. That he has such distinct control over every aspect of his film, you know, and he didn't go to film school. I, I forget if he was a painter or something like that, you know, and I think he kind of found his voice and passion for it right there. And so anyways, he's come a long way and, and um, but anyway. What I, what I love about this is that he is a filmmaker that understands how to communicate his ideas. Yeah. And um, you can see that in so many ways from the way that the two ships are um, constructed. One old, beaten down, rickety. The other one, brand new, pristine, yeah. to claymation of yeah, this, yeah, the yeah, features. Um, we can see it through some of the color palettes. Um, the fact that, you know, uh, we definitely have red and blue and yellow pronounced throughout, you know, so much so that uh, he got Adidas to make a shoe specifically, yes. yeah. um, you know, so he has such command and control of his artistry in this film. But what I love about this film so much, and this is what I always tell my students, is that great filmmakers make films that make people want to watch the film again. Yeah. It's like a roller coaster, right? We go on a roller coaster, we get off the roller coaster, and it's like, I want to go back on. We already know everything that's going to happen in this movie, but we get some sort of different tentilating experience, or sometimes you think, hey, I want to listen to the same song over again, but I only want to look at the bass track yeah. this time, yeah. or I only want to listen to the drum beats. And that's what he's done in this. And he's done it in a way where he has slid so much subtext into this film and he has put so much thought into his artistry of this that it's really mind-blowing. And, you know, one of the things that I have my students 
analyze and what I've really had a lot of fun analyzing and why I tell my students that they should do with their films is make a film that people will watch it at the festival and then they'll go have a beer and say, let's talk about that film. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this is one that is very much that because the arc of the film is not that of an Indiana Jones movie or anything like that, right? It's a very (laughs) subtle arc. It's, you know, very character driven. Um, There really seems to be no apparent answers to anything. They don't kill the shark in the end. You know, Ned is not his son. And turns out he knew it the whole time. (laughs) You know, but yet Ned dies also. and, Mm -hmm. And it's one of these things where it's like, well, what is that movie really about? Yeah. And that's what I love about that movie. And and the and the Cohen brothers uh have done it with a serious man also, where it's like, what is that movie really about? And that's what I tell my students. This movie is not about killing a jaguar shark. Yeah. Right. That's what the plot is about. But what is the movie about? And I love that sort of discussion. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, I mean, when you're watching it, you kind of forget about the jaguar shark for a little bit, just with everything for most going of on. It, yeah. I mean so it's almost like the plot is secondary to everything else going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Wes it's Anderson, easy to forget why they're taking this voyage. Wes Anderson is so skilled. And one of his main skills is creating characters that are engaging, that are interesting um, and memorable. Right. So each crew member has their own thing. Right. And they're all they all play off each other so well. And they make just this weird team that is always fighting, but always engaging to watch. But also the production design on this, as all of his films, are incredible. I love the the set of the the boat, and he uses it so well when people are arguing and they're moving from room to room. And, you know, there's always some kind of weird thing going on in the corner and you only see it for three seconds. But I can't imagine how much time it takes to not only design but film um, and how many takes they have to do. But it's just such a pleasure to watch, and that's – you know, talk about rewatchability. I've yeah. seen this movie several times and every time I see something new because there's so much that fills the frame. Yeah. There's so much detail. Mm-hmm. I also love the stop motion animation with the yeah. sea creatures. Just really well done and fun. And it, when you first see it, you're like, why does it look so vague? And it's like, oh, the point is that these are all like sort of very imaginative things in the sea. And right. Yeah. That's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it really engages like the imagination mm-hmm. part. And also it's like that classic balance of humor and sadness which yeah. Wes Anderson is so good at finding that those relationships because this movie is extremely funny um, there's so many memorable lines in it that just always make me laugh and then it just hits you also from the left right <laughs> with some really sad stuff yeah. and the you know of course you know the Steve character is a jagass like he's not a nice person <laughs> to anybody and of course he and his quote-unquote son are not then they, they get in a, essentially a fight over this woman um and she's only barely interested in in his son and you know it's just fascinating to watch all these things sort of like yeah. collide i often say you know sometimes filmmakers make films for their investors yeah and sometimes filmmakers make films for themselves and i think you know a serious man is definitely that for the cohen brothers this definitely is for wes anderson but it allows him the opportunity to command yeah everything so well you know, the production design of that boat is yeah. unreal, like yeah. unreal. And, the, and, the, and you know, I, the one thing that I always say is, well, why was the decision made to cut a boat in half or to build half a boat 
and have the camera float through the walls and around this space. You know, there must be a reason that he wanted it to be that way instead of, you know, a more traditional, like, you know, roaming through a boat. Similarly, who else could deliver that jackassery? Yeah. Also heart, like just like bleeding heart, beautiful than Bill Murray. Yeah. And and so he he lands this so well and the charisma and the, you know, that that he the panache that that he exhibits on one side, but then the easy sort of collapsibility of that panache on the other side Mm -hmm. is is really palpable. And so, again, it shows his, you know, Wes Anderson's command of you know, letting his creative collaborators understand his vision mm-hmm. and being able to, as a team, you know, deliver the poignant, you know, message of this film, which definitely isn't has nothing to do with killing a shark. Yeah. Um, but you know, um, ultimately it is who is Steve Zisu. So, anyways, would you guys mind if if we dug into some of the subtext of this film? Oh no, go Please. ahead. Yeah. Do you think it's odd that Steve's best friend who gets killed is named Esteban? And for those of you that know Spanish, Esteban is the Spanish version of Steve. (laughs) Right? And do you think that it's interesting that it's about whether or not he's a father Mm -hmm. and his love interest happens to be pregnant? A lady who's pregnant, yeah. right? Father is not right. a part of that child's life, and that a lot of his shipmates look up to him as a father to the point where you know he always thought of them. You know, what I Willem Dafoe's characters like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Was a dad, you know. So why why is that thematically written so much into this movie? Um, and and when I take a, a look at it and take a step back, especially at that time yeah. that this movie was made, one thing that I like to pose to my students is, do you think this in particular is Wes Anderson's sort of like thematic sort of discussion on what it means to be a contemporary man mm-hmm. nowadays? Yeah. Because to be the Jacques Cousteau who's out there doing all these cool, amazing, manly mm-hmm. things which is no longer impressive. Yeah. Right? Um, the people who are super technical and, you know, uh, the guy who says he's half gay and then it's like, well, isn't everybody? Well, yeah. you know, it's like one of these things where Wes Anderson is kind of making a, a statement on to be a man nowadays is not necessarily about all of these other, you know, super panache things, but yeah. maybe it's more of doesn't matter if Ned was his son or not. Mm-hmm. Right. just matter like are you good to people you know <laughs> or whatever it is I don't know people can come away with whatever they want but you know at one point in time so I dug into like you know all of these names and all of yeah. that sort of stuff and the and the color representation and mm-hmm. somewhere I found it and I would love it if if one of your listeners listeners could find this but you know every name has a meaning every color yeah. has a meaning and and some at one point in time I found the meaning of the name Zisu Oh, yeah. And um, I would, you know, it'd be interesting if one of your listeners was able to find it. But essentially, um, I can't find it anymore. But it was like a a Nordic, an ancient Nordic name for manliness. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, again, thinking of the themes and how Wes Anderson 
weaves those themes into this and makes a movie that's about killing a jaguar shark and it's like yeah. well, contextually metaphorically what does the jaguar shark re yeah. represent and ultimately he decides to not kill it off and you know whatever and it's just it's really a fascinating look at the changing dynamics of contemporary you know ideas of men yeah. um, you know and that happened in 2000 like you said 2004, 2004 yeah. and i just you know what is the the cultural context of that right but yeah that's what I love about these types of movies is that when you allow a director and an auteur to kind of have their ability to to really touch every element of of that film, you know, and, and Wes Anderson will probably never say what the movie is really right, about, right. and and that may be something that I'm going through in my own personal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> psyche or whatever it is. But I think that's what great art is, is yeah. that it forces everyone to have their interpretation of it mm -hmm. and think about it and view it. And it's no longer just a piece of entertainment. And it's something that becomes, I don't know, a fabric of that individual's being. And I think he succeeded very well at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, building on your idea there, Craig, I mean, masculinity is played with a lot in this film. And it's interesting because it's certainly presented as possibly he makes all this stuff up, mm -hmm. right? Like even his, his, the early films that we see a little bit of like, he, oh, I see something over there. And it looks super staged that they're rescuing animals out of a- Like a, a creature <clears throat> that hasn't been seen for like, whatever, a hundred years right. or whatever. The yeah, and he happens yeah. to find, yeah. yeah. So it looks a little suspect, right? But then the action scenes, I mean, they get taken over by pirates mm -hmm. and then he has to go like rescue his friend. But the action scenes are so different in like the whole shift of the tone of the film. Just, but it's like it's not a typical action scene, right? I mean, things do explode, but it's played for laughs, and also like the violence. While it is like there are gory moments, but it's not about that, right? It's about like, and he's very successful at not getting shot somehow. <laughs> but at the, but then there's engine failure is what mm -hmm. really is dangerous in this film, right? It's so interesting. Yeah, in terms of like his image. He's presented as this like great oceanographer, but even he acknowledges like, yeah, that picture of me pointing toward the horizon that never really felt like me. And then right. at the end, he's like, I read your article and, you know, at first I hated it, but then I just kind of accepted that that's who I am. Like, <laughs> you right. know, I'm not this like great intrepid manly explorer. I'm like this guy, you know, whatever that means. So. Right. Right. And he gets to that point because yeah. earlier on when she challenges him in the very first interview, what does he do? The most manly thing could be point a gun, pull a yeah. gun. Yeah. Yeah. Space, right? yeah, everybody gets a Glock. <laughs> and, right. And yeah. so he goes through this whole thing. And one of one of my favorite things, too, is to to challenge bartenders by just walking up and asking for a Zisu and see if for <laughs> you a Campari yeah. with a twist of lime. But, yeah. <laughs> do they do they usually know what it is i've had 50 50 success okay. wow <laughs> i'm impressed yeah. well um do you have a favorite scene in the movie craig i mean there's so many good ones i love the portuguese acoustic version yes. of David I love that. awesome. and that's the musician right yes. in the movie yeah yes. you know you mentioned some of those fight scenes or whatever it is the 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 moment when the pirates go on the ship, that action scene of trying to to save uh, the safe and all of that, like that one is just really such a good 
scene, not only from like the idea of the action, um, but also the color correction changes in yeah. those moments. Mm -hmm. But I think one of my favorite moments in the film, and this just goes back to the, you know, the jackass that is Bill Murray's character, Steve Zissou in this, him and Ned go to a an Italian cafe to have a coffee where at the next table over, some people yeah. are talking smack on, yeah. on Steve Zissou. And he goes and he sits down in the street and uh, and Ned sits down next to him and he says something to the effect of, you know, I don't even know if I know who I am anymore. And he pulls an earring out of his left ear and throws it down the street. And he sits there. Ned gets up. And without looking at Ned, he puts his hand back up, knowing that Ned went to retrieve the earring to bring it back to him to place it into his hand. Uh, it's just one of those things where it's like, again, just understanding the background of a character like that to understand Obviously, it's all fabricated, but it just it shows that character so yeah. well and is one of those funny little moments that Wes Anderson really takes advantage of in this film. Totally. Yeah. Susan, do you have a favorite scene? It's really hard for me to pick. I mean, any scene with the animation, I really love. Visually, I really love it. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the end scene where they're in the submarine and yeah. they see the jaguar shark, really powerful. A really tiny moment that I still think is probably my favorite line in the whole movie is when the pirates are on the ship and everyone's lined up against the wall with their hands behind, tied behind their heads. And he goes, you can't shoot him. He's an unpaid intern. Yes. <laughs> I don't, for some reason, that line in that moment was so funny to me. Yeah. And there's a million great lines like that, but that one really stuck in my head. Yeah. There are a lot of like, yeah. little tiny moments <laughs> like that that are great. Yeah, I think mine would be probably, I mean, I love the scene where they storm the beach. But then the heartbreaking leaving the dog behind. Oh, yeah, Cody. Um, but then I totally agree. I think the end with the when everyone's in the, the mini sub and they finally see the jaguar shark is just it's one of those like filmmaking moments that it's really quiet, but it's just so beautiful. It's just it's great. Yeah, yeah. it's just a good movie overall. If you haven't seen it, check it out. If you have seen it and watch it's it been again. a while, watch it again. There's probably something you missed. <laughs> We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling I Know You. Actors are often known for particular projects, but in this game, we're going to see if you can name them using their other movies. So, Craig, you're going to be playing against Susan. So here are the rules. I'm going to start naming movies that an actor has appeared in. As soon as you know the actor, shout out their name. If you're wrong, the other player will get a chance to guess. I have five actors for you to identify, and the first person to name three correctly will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? This is some Life in the Credits merchandise, like a shirt or a hat. All right. All right, your first movie is Armageddon. Ben Affleck. I'm sorry, that's not correct. Susan, do you have a guess? Is Willem Dafoe in that movie? Willem Dafoe is not correct. Okay. I'm going to give you the next movie. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Anaconda. Jeff Goldblum? Not correct. <laughs> Steve Buscemi. Not correct, but good guess. He's in Armageddon. Number three, Cars. Bruce Willis. Nope. I have no idea. All right, number four. I think you guys are going to start getting it. Okay. Zoolander. Oh, Ben still. Oh, no, no, no. It's Owen Wilson. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Very good, Susan. It Does that count Owen... if I said Ben Stiller first? You get a okay. point, for sure. Oh, my God. So, Owen Wilson is in Armageddon, Anaconda, Cars, Zoolander, and it's Fifth and final clue for you was Wedding Crashers. Okay, that, yeah. All right. Number so I think they are people. All great films, by the yes, way. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Craig, uh, I think they are all people who are in the... Don't life. give anybody... <laughs> no clues. All right, your next actor. Number one, I'm Not There. Number two, Nightmare Alley. Number three, Tar. Kate Blanchett. Yes, very oh. good, Craig. On the board with a point. On the board. Now oh. I just feel good. You can yes, yeah. One to one. You always feel better when now. You no one. matter what happens, yeah. we both have a point. Yeah, my <laughs> students would never let me live it down. Yeah. Uh, number four was Thor Ragnarok, and number five was Lord of the Rings: yeah. Fellowship of the Rings. So great, you guys are both tied at one. Okay. Next actor, number one, Platoon. Bill Murray. Nope. Oh, he's not. I'm thinking of Stripes. I think is he in Stripes? I'm it doesn't matter. Me. It's yeah. not. It's not Platoon. <laughs> no. Number two, Speed 2 Cruise Control. Number three, At Eternity's Gate. Number four, Spider-Man. And number five, The Lighthouse. Willem Dafoe. Yes! Oh. Very good, Craig. He was in that uh, Spider-Man movie. Yeah, he was the Green Goblin. Yes. He was also... Uh, the painter in e At Eternity's Gate. I don't think I've seen that movie. I'm surprised. Yeah. All right. Your Lighthouse was a crazy, yeah, movie. crazy good. Yeah. I also love Willem Dafoe anytime he's in a Wes Anderson movie. Like, you don't think of good. him being funny, but yeah, he's very he's really funny, funny in The Life Aquatic. An underrated comedic actor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Number, you're, so it's two to one. Okay. Craig's got a lead. Okay. Your next actor, number one, Annie Hall. Number two, Earth Girls Are Easy. Number three, The Fly. Oh, Jeff Goldblum. Yes, yeah. that is Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> yes. Um, he was also on Independence Day and Jurassic right. Park. Right. Um, so he was in Annie Hall as a extra. Okay, I did not. I, <laughs> I didn't know that too until I looked it up. All right. Here's the deal. We are tied at tied two. Tied at two. Okay. So this last one is going to decide it for us. Okay. Your first movie is, number one, Space Jam. Number two, Garfield. Number three, Stripes. Oh. <laughs> it's the actor you're describing right now is Bill Murray. Oh, my gosh. Susan takes it with three points. Do you points. have one more? No, oh. uh, that, that was all fine. You got you won. Uh, the other movies that he was in is Lost in Translation and Ghostbusters. Nice. So well done, Susan. You win. But Craig, you've been you such a pleasure. <laughs> We're going to send you something anyway. Yes. Craig, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to plug? I would like to plug positivity. Yes. I think, you know, uh, you know, thank you for what you guys do. It's It's such an inspiring thing that uh, will, you know, help people kind of ease their mind um, for, for getting into this industry, being a positive part of this industry. There's so much great things moving forward. Um, and for any of you that are high schoolers looking to go to an amazing film program, we have one for you at Indiana University, yes. where you can buy my book and we can talk all about it for four years. Excellent. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's it's such a great time. And thank you guys so much for giving me a chance to be here today. Of course. Thank you for being on the show. This was great. Yeah, it's really an interesting. absolute pleasure. Yeah. 
Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. You can't shoot him. He's an unpaid intern. Yes. (laughs)